So this is the season finale, episode eight of Emergency on Planet Sport with Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. Every episode in this series has started with one of our unique, especially commissioned pieces of performance poetry. And I hope you'll agree that Kenny and Cecilia have done a great job for us. Sports, you say, paradoxical thing. Climate change is a huge issue. It's a global issue. It affects everybody. Passionless place like a curious fling. Sport is going to be unusually affected by changes in weather, changes in trends in the weather. Temperatures rising. Should it be so surprising? What exactly are we waiting for? This is like insane. <laughs> like, are we really playing tennis in this weather, like right now? What on earth are we waiting for? It's going to have severe consequences for our species. The climate emergency needs us to fight. Think of it in terms of the positive change that you can actually make. I don't think that's depressing. I don't, I don't mean to sound depressing at all, because I don't think it is depressing. I think it's exciting. To stand up to the crisis and start putting right. We now know what the potential impacts may be, so let's draw a line in the sand and let's start from here. Maybe there's much play. I want humanity to be in a stage where we're still celebrating sport in a hundred years' time. A comeback of sorts. And if we don't make radical, pretty drastic changes, that won't be happening. And before the TVs and the phones can display it, what use is sport with no world on to play it? I think if one line sums up why we wanted to do this and why we've done what we've done with this series to bring a community together, it's that. It's this uneasy relationship between sport and climate change when you look into the future, which is at the heart of this. And this final episode of the series is about the solutions and the future. So plenty of positivity coming up and we want you to keep the conversation alive as well on social media at Planet Sport Pod. And with me throughout this episode, one of the most positive, proactive, uh, certainly hardest working people in the sport sustainability space, it's Sport Positives, Claire Paul. That's us. Oh, thanks for being part of this, Claire. Thank you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Where did it all start for you? So there was a few a few germs of ideas, Jonathan, to be honest. I think I've been in um, working in sustainability, renewable energy, um, climate change for many years and massive, avid sports fan. Um, and essentially, it was bringing the two ideas together. So I'd been doing some work in sport and sustainability. My background, again, is large-scale events and communications, external comms, um, so I've been doing some work with different organisations to support them in this journey. And as my work kind of continued, it became very clear that there was loads of great stuff happening in um, pockets around the world in sport with sustainability and climate change. But it was all very much people doing what they could or people doing what was important to them. And, you know, learnings weren't being taken from one organisation to another or one sport to another. Um, so because of my background and my kind of expertise and my position, as well as the fact I love talking to people all the time and finding out and helping connect people, it seemed like a very obvious play um, to try and bring these people together, basically so we can move forward more quickly um, globally in terms of best practices and learnings and connections and partnerships etc and then also I was you know fortunate to have connections in with um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and they were looking at different sectors that they could engage um, around climate change and we spoke about sport and I brought them out to a, a conference I was hosting and then was able to help 
them and work with them in establishing the kind of the germ of the idea that became Sports for Climate Action as well. So as all of this sort of galvanised Sport Positive Summit came out of that, because it's kind of, you know, one of the annual meeting places for the signatories of the framework, as well as the opportunity for organisations that aren't signatories yet to come to learn, to connect um, and think about why it's beneficial for them to join up. So a number of different agendas came together. Because there will be a lot of organisations, governing bodies perhaps in sport, who have big ideas, they want to do good work, but they just don't know where to turn. Yeah. Um, so tell us more about the framework. So for us, I well, I think it's absolutely crucial. The, the benefit of it is um, have a global framework so that essentially if an organisation has the will and the desire but hasn't got perhaps an idea where they should start, what's going to make the most impact, how they should be going about it, the framework provides um, not just the framework itself, which is the five principles held within, and those five principles are undertaking systematic efforts to promote greater environmental responsibility, reducing climate impact, educating um, and advocating for climate action, as well as promoting sustainable and responsible consumption. So the principles are there that you can start to hang your sustainability strategy off, but also you become part of a club of now 160 or so global organisations where everyone's working towards the same goals. You can share learnings, you join working groups um, as we as we've spoken about you know there isn't answers to all of these questions but by coming together and working through them together and um, we're going to get there a lot a lot faster than we otherwise would so i think the framework gives people um i think the the framework to work off the network of global um, sports organisations that are doing the same work and also almost the confidence to know you're going down the right path and you're not perhaps getting tied up in something that isn't very impactful to your overall footprint. OK, well, there are loads of organisations already signed up. One of them is Formula E, who we were hearing from yeah. earlier in the series. Uh, their sustainability director is Julia Palais. Well, that's Julia's dog, by the way. Sorry for the dog. That's a... <laughs> we love a dog on a pod. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Um, absolutely. So I think that there is a huge opportunity for sports to show more leadership. And, uh, and this started a few years ago already. Um, United Nations, uh, back in 2000 and um, uh, in 2017, um, actually chose two key sectors to really kind of like uh, embody ra and raise awareness of climate change, sports and fashion, because they have this kind of like amazing abil ability to touch like billions of people because they really kind of like uh, they generate passion they, they really get this thrill uh, in the heart and mind of the people um, so I think that's really where the sports sector uh, kind of like start, started to shift and kind of like uh, become more aware of not only kind of like the sport for good element that they can generate but also their own responsibility to showcase that uh, you know like they, are, they need to be exemplary themselves so uh, I mean sports organizations like Formula E and Extreme e that have been created with really that sense of purpose at the heart of the sport so not for the sport itself but for the wider message the wider purpose um really kind of like are i think uh, signs of the time that the sports industry is going to radically change mm. so claire why aren't more organizations signed up i think there's a, a few different reasons and i find it very interesting when i chat to people about their appetite to join the framework and what might be holding them back I think more broadly in different parts of the world, it might be a political agenda. Um, climate change can be a hot potato in some countries. Um, I think here 
the majority of people understand the impact of climate change now, but um, it can be a political issue in some countries. So there's there's that element. Um, I also think what's very interesting is that a lot of uh, sports organisations that are doing loads in sustainability and climate change are a bit reticent to hold to, to sign up because they think, we're doing loads, but if we make this commitment and we're going to be held to it, are we doing enough? Are we doing the right things? Can we keep doing this? We're doing it now because it's the right thing to do and we see the value. But once we sign up, we've made a commitment here and it's a very long-term commitment and we need to keep going. So almost sometimes it's actually organisations that are doing already doing loads are a little bit reticent and we're trying to change the dialogue around that as I'm sure a lot of your other um, you know people who are joining on the podcast are saying trying to underline that this is a journey to sustainability we're all going for this goal um, and we don't expect you to be perfect if we were waiting for all sports organizations to have cracked it before they sign up we'd have no signatories but we're all on this journey different stages of the journey and can we get there together more quickly mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it touches on one of those themes in one of the earlier episodes, that that fear of hypocrisy, if you like. And I mean, take a look at at Manchester City. You create this Premier League sustainability league table and they are always either at the top or very close to the top. They do great work there. But we can't escape the fact they're sponsored by an airline. So how do you how do you square that circle, deal with that paradox, if you like? Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really important question and quite a complex one. But I think so for me the angle we take with it is in every aspect of our lives whether you're an international globally recognized um, football club or whether you're you or me you can do the right things insofar as you're able to. So there's always going to be constraints that are beyond certain members of football clubs or other sports organisations where the people inside are doing the right things and they're working towards goals like sustainability, you know, Manchester City, unbelievable sustainability efforts around um, climate change, sustainability, biodiversity, um, community impacts, etc. And yeah, obviously some of their, their financial means come from an airline and people would argue that, that you know, that that's coming from a fossil-based um, contributor etc but the people who are working inside the clubs don't necessarily have the control over where the money comes in they just have the drive and the passion to do what they're doing so it is quite complex in terms of the people who are boots on the ground doing the work and then perhaps financial decisions that are outside of their capabilities um, or within their remit uh, but also I think the hypocrisy is always going to be there but you know conversations around how far athletes travel for games for example so how can they credibly talk about climate change? But we also have the same conversation around business travel, you know, and someone it's just that people um, don't perhaps have the same profile and the same platform that footballers do. So it's an easier target for people to call hypocrisy on that. But are the, are the emissions that they're creating through their travel, you know, what does that quantify as? quantifiers in comparison to perhaps other people or business travellers but the platform that they've got to use to create positive change what are the impacts of that so this is what we have to weigh up and I think sometimes football and especially footballers who we think of as driving around in Maseratis and travelling on private jets as you well know the the number of professional footballers at that level versus professional footballers in lower leagues or 
you know, amateur footballers is massive and they all have a platform. So um, very complex. But I think, yeah, I, I don't envisage that probably going away anytime soon. No. And you mentioned the lower leagues. Let's drop down the leagues in English football and visit a club who are real leaders in this space, not just in English football, but in European and world football as well. The self-proclaimed greenest club in the world, Forest Green Rovers, and the man behind them, Dale Vince. I came here in, in August and I was sat more or less here in this room um, meeting the guys that were running the club. Yeah, my name's Dale Vincent, I'm the chairman of Forest Green Rovers. There was a game on, it was a beautiful sunny day and I just thought it was a lovely place, there were lovely people and I thought why not. And I think one day in September or October um, the chairman or somebody at the club said to me you really need to be the chairman of the club. And I said, I'm really done. You know, it's just so busy. Don't need to do that. But the choice was clear. It was that would see the club fold. And um, so I just shrugged and said, well, you know, why not? Let's give it a go. How hard can it be? We're in a place we never expected to be, really. We've found that um, football fans in particular are particularly open to the um, environment messaging that we brought to the club. We thought football would be a difficult audience. We haven't found it that way, actually. Uh, we just had to reach them with information and show them uh, not just what we were doing, but why we were doing it and how it kind of applied to them at home as well and kind of seeded subconsciously, I think, within our fans' thoughts about what they could do. And so, you know, over the 10 years, our, our fans have gone from being surprised at the changes that we've been making to embracing them. Uh, we've got fans that have gone veggie, gone vegan, buying electric cars, got solar panels, you know, the whole kind of eco nine yards really. And that's just the tip of the iceberg for us because we teamed up with the UN. We're founding signatories for a program called Sport for Climate Action, which is a global program to pretty much do the same as what we've done here at Forest Green to engage sports fans through the medium of sport, to get them passionate about the environment and, and tackling the climate crisis through changes in their own lives. And we've got this incredible reach that I never expected either as a football club, 100 uh, fan clubs in different countries of the world now, self-formed combinations of uh, environment people and football people that have bonded with the club because of the work that we do. So we've got this enormous platform and ability to influence other clubs, other sports uh, and um, fans beyond just the, the audience of Forest Green, uh, beyond my wildest dreams, I would say. Which, which is what this series is all about. Do you think sport as a, <clears throat> as a global community, I mean, all, all of us from, from supporters to governing bodies, do you think we understand the urgency of the situation facing the planet at the moment? Well, I, I, think, um, I think increasingly people are getting the issue. You know, people in society, sport is a kind of, subsection isn't it it's a kind of sector of interest i mean lots of billions around the planet of people are fans of one sport or another actually i mean they're just a, a section of society and i would say increasingly people generally are more concerned about the environment more concerned that we do something about it and sport is no different sport fans you know are part of that wider society group and and they share that rising concern i think sport is not unique in that respect, but where it is unique is that it can be a platform. People do look up to the clubs that they follow and the athletes that are within those clubs. 
and they take their cues from them. So we just need to do more. You know, we need more clubs like Forest Green Rovers that take sustainability seriously, that weave it into the DNA of the club. You know, we hold it to be as equally as important as on on field performance. And, um, the, you know, there are lots of things that clubs can do to green themselves up and through that reach the um, fans with sustainability messaging. So in terms of solutions, in terms of what you've done here and what works for you here, what what is a quick win? What is an easy win that someone listening to this is involved in a sports club or organization could actually implement straight away to make a difference? I'd change the menu, I would say. You know, take animals out of uh, out of your food. And you don't have to do it all at once. Uh, do it gradually. At least begin with, a, with an animal-free option, aka vegan or plant-based. Call it what you like, but take the animals out of at least one option and, um, and see how it goes. There's some great food out there. It's very accessible. Uh, it's very tasty. Fans will like it. It's one of the biggest things that we can all do to fight the climate crisis, change what we eat. Football food is not among the best, is it, that, that you ever bump into? So we were competing with that, so it was a low bar. But we, we make great food. It's handmade. It's made with love. And the, the taste has really surprised people because there's a kind of mythology going into this. People think, well, uh, plant-based food or vegan food is food with something missing, but it isn't. And when they try it for themselves, it changes perceptions. And so we've experienced that at the beginning. The old timers that were here at the club said to us, you'll kill the club. If you don't serve meat, people won't come on a match day and they won't come for an event on a non-match day. You'll kill the club. It's had the opposite effect. Our fans have really grown to love it. And uh, visiting fans as well, you know, they go back to their clubs and they say, why can't we have food like that? So it's begun that kind of grassroots pull on other clubs to change their menus. So, you know, food is actually an easy frontier. It looks like the hardest in all of the conversations I have at the UN, uh, for example, uh, other clubs and bodies will say to me, how do you get your club to go vegan? You know, how can you how can you do that without a riot? I think the man from San Francisco 49ers said to me. And I said, actually, you know, it's, it's not that hard. So it looks difficult, but it's not. And it's one of the biggest changes we can make. And actually, what you get as a result, I think, is a food upgrade. What, what about logistically stadiums, training grounds? <clears throat> is, is there any reason why all, all venues can't be powered on renewable energy? No, none. What, what's holding people back, do you think? No, there's, there's no reason at all. You know, there's plenty of different uh, companies out there supplying it. There's, quite a, there's plenty on the grid. Most stadiums have a suitable roof for self-installed solar panels, for example. So you can make your own. We make 20% of our own electricity here at the club. The rest we bring in from the grid, but from wind energy. That's a very straightforward thing to do these days. Transportation? What about sort of like logistically getting teams around, <clears throat> around the country? Yeah, just because you're moving into transport and we've touched on food and energy, let me just... If I, if I may, mm. just say that the way we look at this is as energy, transport and food, the three big sectors of life. That's how we tackled it at the club. It's how we operate as an energy company and in all of our other work. We have to look at how we power ourselves, how we travel and what we eat. Because within those three areas of life where we make choices every day, 80% of all our personal carbon footprints can be found. And the same is true of businesses and organizations like football clubs as well. It's a great universal rule. So in terms of transport here, we put some electric charging points in for cars uh, at the get-go so that fans could arrive here in an electric car and get home in one as well. And that's happening now, which is a great thing. Uh, we've got an electric van for our kit man, which is working really well. 
We haven't got yet an electric team coach, though um, we would like one and we did think about making one, but we can see them coming. Electric buses are on the roads of Britain now. It won't be long before coaches are. Obviously, we don't fly because we don't compete in Europe. Um, yes. <laughs> yet, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you can dive deeper than that into detail, like um, stopping single-use plastic, uh, making sure nothing goes to landfill, composting, that kind of stuff. These are all details. But if you tackle where your power comes from, how you travel and what you eat, then you're, you know, you're tackling the big, uh, big targets. And are you, you must have other clubs who come to you almost for, for advice. Does, mm-hmm. does that happen a lot? Yeah. Yeah, frequently. Uh, we like that. Uh, clubs, organising bodies as well. You know, we've done, we've had a few chats with the FA, for example. They've got a good sustainability team there. Premier League clubs, uh, we're having, we were having two or three conversations before lockdown in March. Um, other other sports as well, like cricket, rugby, uh, golf. We've even had conversations with the groundskeeper for uh, St George's Park, England's training ground, about how to make an organic pitch work. Do you think if we um, if we fail to grasp the urgency, if we fail to act as as, a, as an entire planet on this, as in speaking, I guess as in individuals with a collective a collective power, do you think sport as we know it could change in the not too distant future? Oh, life as we know it is going to change, and sport is just a part of life. So absolutely, everything's at risk. It's a way bigger problem than the uh, virus crisis because we can't vaccinate ourselves against. The climate crisis and social distancing won't help us. The degree to which we're capable of change when faced with the really pressing need to. So the virus crisis presented as an imminent existential threat. The climate crisis presents as one that we can deal with tomorrow or in 10 years or in some people's case, 30 years with a 2050 target. You know, we don't take it that seriously because people around us aren't dropping dead from it. Not yet. The actual environment that supports our life on Earth is under threat. Um, sport is included in that every aspect of life. But more specifically, uh, lately we've we've seen uh, peculiar rain. You know, last couple of years we've seen intense kind of amounts of rain, and we've had to look at the drainage system of our pitch and say, do you know what? It's no longer fit for purpose in the new world. We need bigger drains because we're getting bigger rain. So that's a kind of direct uh, impact of climate change that we can see already. Mm. Can I ask you about the stadium here and the, and the ground here? Big plans. It's got the go-ahead, hasn't it, for Eco Park? Yeah, the new stadium, Eco Park, um, has the go-ahead as of a few months ago. It's a big place by Junction 13 of the M5. It's an all-wooden football stadium designed for us by Zaha Deed's practice, uh, first in the world to be made entirely of wood. And really that's driven by uh, the fact that we wanted the lowest carbon footprint, most environmentally friendly stadia that was possible to conceive. 75% of the carbon footprint of all sports stadia in their lifetime comes from the materials they're made from. It's not about the energy used to power it for 20, 30, 40 years. It's about what you build it from. There's a lot of embedded carbon in concrete and steel that are the chief culprits. So by not having those, by having an all wooden construction, we get a super low carbon footprint and a beautiful stadium, I have to say. And wood is a lovely warm material as well to be around. It's a completely different outcome. Yeah, the, the artist's impressions that I've seen, are, you're right, beautiful, lovely looking place. Again, any reason why more venues, bigger venues, couldn't replicate that plan, Dale? No, it could be done. Um, 
I don't think a lot of new sports stadia get built, do they, relatively speaking. You know, most people are kind of stuck with what they've got or happy with what they've got. Uh, but when new buildings are being built, wood is a great choice of material. There are high-rise buildings being built out of it now in Canada, four or five-story buildings, for example. It's a little bit back to the future, of course, for us as a species to be building in wood, um, but it's a good move. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for <coughs> seeing us here. Pleasure. Thank all, you. All the very best. Can't wait to see that new wooden stadium in the Gloucestershire countryside. That's Dale Vince from Forest Green Rovers. Claire Paul from Sport Positive is with us throughout this final episode of this series. Claire, what do you make of what's going on there at uh, Forest Green Rovers? Well, I think FGR, I'm a, a big fan of Forest Green. I think um, I know Dale and Helen and the team over there very well. And I think um, what I love about Dale is the commitment to it. And he's obviously the chairman of the club and drives um, decisions and decision making. Um, but the conviction that he has to be able to say this is how we're doing it, I think, is the sort of secret source of what they're doing. And it, it, when he spoke at the summit this year, highlighted how I think they've maybe nearly doubled their sponsorship revenue even during a, a you know even during a global pandemic because of their sustainability credentials and because of their impacts um, there. It's amazing, but again, Dale makes it very simple, and that's what I love about Dale. It's very simple, you know. They make the decision and go with it. And for other organisations, it's perhaps more complex if it isn't the chairman who's taken the decision making. And sometimes it's it's bottom up instead of top down. Um, but I think Dale has, I think he's got incredible credibility. I think he's got the conviction and he, by his own admission, if it's a financial or an environmental decision, he will always go with what's better for the environment than just making money. And I think the core of that is what drives everything. And, you know, again, Forest Green have got fans all over the world now and people come to visit and and they have global fans because of those credentials so it just shows if people are hot into this and they haven't already got a team they're gaining fans so if we come back to the united nations sport for climate action framework that you told us about earlier this mission statement for clubs governing bodies who want to make a statement in this space maybe get some some guidance if we look at football there actually aren't too many uk clubs signed up are there there's hibernian there's Forest Green Rovers, there's a green connection. But in the Premier League, only Arsenal, and they've only signed up recently. So just wonder why that is and yeah. uh, and whether that disappoints you at all. I mean, are you, are you disappointed more clubs are not signed up? I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not disappointed because obviously I have great relationship with many of the Premier League clubs and I know all the work that's going on behind the scenes. Um, and I also, whilst I'd love to say to you in, in six months' time and certainly by the COP, we've got all the Premier League clubs signed up and we've got this mass commitment. That would be my absolute dream of Nirvana. Um, at the same time, because I work quite closely with them, I know what's going on behind the scenes and the amount of work that's going into it. And I know that clubs are taking this really seriously um, and the work is happening. But for reasons that are mixed and various, they may not have literally signed on the bottom line or they might have signed and they haven't announced yet, etc. So there's a lot of other things that go along with that but I think yeah I know I, I see what you're saying but I think because of my inside track on that I'm not disappointed with it but I'm excited for when the day comes when we can say 
all Premier League clubs are signed up, for sure. Well, it was good to hear from Oriol Romeo, wasn't it? The Southampton midfielder earlier in the series about their new sustainability strategy. And I was trying to convince him to uh, nudge a few people at the top table, if you like, and sign up. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how they get on with that. Um, anyway, let's talk about priorities, Claire. Um, sustainability, the environment, the planet as a priority in decision making within sport, because this is key, isn't it? How far down the list is it at the minute? And when will we get to the day where every decision is taken with sustainability in mind, rather than, say, commercial interests in mind? I, I think historically, I think the last couple of years, things have changed dramatically. I've been working in sort of renewable energy and climate change and sustainability for about 12, 13 years. And the change in impact, I would say, in the past sort of 18 months to two years has been massive. The rise of veganism, David Attenborough and Blue Planet, Greta Thunberg, you know, people actually knowing what the annual COP is. You know, years ago, I'd say I was going to the COP and people would look at me like, what? What, are you going to Liverpool Football Club? What's happening? Um, but yeah, the, I think the visibility and, and the way things have changed so dramatically, I think now it's becoming much bigger in professional sports agenda for sure but what we can't forget and what people outside professional sports might not think about is that decisions around tours are made so far in advance so you know if you think about the olympics and the euros etc bids are happening for 2030 2034 or whatever now so things happen so far in advance that actually now we can look very critically about what's happened but the decision on how that was configured could have happened eight or nine years ago when perhaps this wasn't in the cultural zeitgeist as much as it is now. So I think hopefully we hope going forward environmental impacts and also when we think about environmental impacts it's actually operational efficiencies as well in terms of the way things are often if you find it's um you know trying to save money and have operational efficiencies and time efficiencies often it help, helps the environment as well and um, so i think people are starting to think more holistically about it now but we're still seeing the hangover from when perhaps it wasn't quite as high up the agenda well, we've certainly got plenty of time to think about things at the moment, haven't we? And it, it is a good time to, to reassess, don't you think? If COVID has shown us anything, it's that we have to adapt and we have to sometimes get used to life without the things we love. We have to learn new ways of working and living. So um, what about sport and what about climate change? What about major events, for example? Do we have to take this time to reassess how we actually run sport in the future, do you think? I think at the minute, I think anything could be on the table in terms of COVID and the impact it's had. I think um, I think for sure, based on what's happened, a lot of sport will be dying to get back to business as usual because of the massive impact um, that has happened this year. But I also think it could be a missed opportunity if we don't take the time to think can we you know the overused build back better recover better etc but certainly taking that as a pure concept to think about how we are going about these mega sporting events in the future and actually what the benefits are and perhaps it's not the time to be building more and bigger and bigger and bigger and actually maybe we should be looking at you know again not necessarily scaling back, but looking at things in different ways, whether it's location or whether it's how frequently they take place or, you know, keeping the mega sports events, but reducing some of the, you know, annual or biannual events that lead up to those, you know, is the ways that we can start to, to look at that um, in a slightly different way. And I think 
Um, tabling that as a conversation, I think now is probably more possible than it's ever been to have this conversation after what everyone's endured this year. Which brings us neatly on to solutions, uh, everyday solutions, governmental solutions, corporate big business solutions. We, we can all play our part, can't we? Yeah. Let's hear again from Russell Seymour, who's the chief executive of the British Association for Sustainable Sport. He's been with us throughout this series. Here are his solutions. Look, I mean, climate change is is a huge issue. It's a global issue. Um, it affects everybody, um, and everybody contributes to it. There's, I don't think there's uh, anybody in the world who, who isn't responsible for some level of, of carbon emissions. Um, for me, the onus really does sit on on governments. It sits on big corporations, etc., to make substantial changes. But individuals can make their voice heard in terms of the products that we use, um, the way that we respond to uh, to campaigns. To you know, it does make a difference to write to your MP. Um, it does make a difference to actually express an opinion um, by purchasing certain things and, and not purchasing others. Um, where you can you know try and go for an electric car or at least a hybrid um switch to a renewable energy supplier there are lots of things you can do as an individual but also an absolutely key thing is not to feel shame not to feel guilt necessarily around this try and do this in a positive way you know what what can i do don't don't necessarily despair but think of it in terms of think of it in terms of the positive change that you can actually make we've got to start from somewhere and, and really, we are where we are. Um, so everybody, whether it's an individual, whether it's a, a cricket club, whether it's a major company, or whether it's a government, we are where we are. We now know what the potential impacts uh, may be. So let's draw a line in the sand and let's start from here and actually make some positive changes. But everybody can contribute. But the onus shouldn't always be on the individuals. Um, but individuals can actually make a difference. Hmm. Plenty of positivity there from Russell Clare. Um, I just wonder, though, is everybody as positive? You you must have come across a club or an organisation who just leave you banging your head against the table, <laughs> right? There must be. Well, they, they do, obviously, but maybe I just don't talk to them because I think, why would anyone get in touch with me to say, I think what you're doing is ridiculous? <laughs> I think they're more keeping their head under the table um, but no I, I mean genuinely doing the Premier League sustainability table there's some clubs that are more passionate about it than others but doing it last year and redoing the work on the sport positive Premier League sustainability table this year which we'll launch in January um, there isn't one club who's like unresponsive or not interested they're just at different stages um, and that can be because of priorities financial priorities resource priorities you know the fact that it just hasn't been front of mind before or they haven't had the person in the team who's been able to drive etc so for different reasons but I think yeah I'm delighted when we launched the sustainability um, Premier League sustainability table last year the impact that it had and I've before that it had been me knocking on clubs doors saying what are you doing what's going on <laughs> and now they are coming to me saying Claire we're doing this and we've just launched this and you know what's your thoughts on this happening over there so I think the shift just in launching the table last year has been great as well to see right I think we'll have a little game to uh, to end with then um, a kind of premonition where might we be in sport in I don't know say 20 years time and we're going to find out a lot about our guests here aren't we we're going to find out whether they go down the doom and gloom route or whether they go down the super positive route which I sense Claire Paul is definitely your route yeah stay positive 
I mean, the name, the clues in the title, and I am an irritatingly positive person, but I think that's why I love working in sport and sustainability and climate so much, because climate change and biodiversity loss is obviously the biggest issue of our generation, for sure. Um, and when you think the way sport brings people together, whatever, 4 billion football fans globally, 2.5 billion cricket fans globally, people get so much joy out of sport and they get so much passion and enjoyment from it. And I think the way we can you know, have that and use that to the benefit of educating people and communicating with people and perhaps changing things along the way. So in 20 years time, we have got something that's more efficient, that's lower emissions um, and that everyone's signed up to and we're all unified about what's important and how to make it work. I think that's the future I'd always, um, I'd always want to see. Um, I'm sure you may have seen Man City's uh, video with their water partner Xylem and they kind of predict this 2050 future where football, the end of football because of water shortages etc and I would be devastated to see that in my lifetime that we've just you know, been negligent to the point that we can't actually go and watch competitive sport anymore because we've it's gone too bad so hopefully everyone will get on board get in the boat and start rowing as we say and um, get to you know make sure that we can fix these issues before it gets to that stage okay well let's um let's get all hypothetical for a moment at our at our virtual conference of the future where are we i mean let's say 2035 um are are we doom and gloom or are we super positive let's bring in another of uh, the guests on this series for their um little projection and premonition and a scenario perhaps Uh, here's climate consultant dom goggins well, it was funny that 2020 was the year when we were not allowed to go and watch football. And then in 2035, they stopped us again because there's not enough water to make the stadiums run properly. That was the saddest moment for me. And, 20, and 2035 took me back to 2020 because that's what it felt like. I couldn't go and watch City anymore. And it was heartbreaking because it was a thing that I love to do. Anything else? The other thing that broke my heart was when but they all started to fall into the sea uh, and we knew that we wouldn't be able to play there anymore. I haven't seen cricket for a while now in Australia. I mean, they play it sometimes in the winter and sometimes they play it at night, but it's not the same as it used to be. This is radical. And the Winter Olympics is long since finished, so it's... um, (laughs) Could happen. It's a sad state of affairs. (laughs) All right, all from Don Goggins' imagination, 2035. OK, definitely from the doom and gloom camp there. I don't know. Look, we can't end on that. We need something more positive to end with. I'll tell you what we should do. We should hear again from Will Gad, the Canadian ice mountaineer who was with us on episode six. Uh, His brilliant uh, impression of an electric chainsaw gets uh, another run out by popular demand. And also his general positivity for the challenge. It's what we need right now after Dom. People think, well, you know, it's all bad. But, you know, my chainsaw broke the other day. This is a two-stroke chainsaw. It, it, it died after 25 years of oil service, and I had to get a new chainsaw. And I went into the store, and, and I'm looking at them all, and there's electric chainsaws, like battery-powered ones. And these batteries also run my electric drill and some other things. So I'm like, hey, this is cool. It's not all dooby gloob to make these small changes. You know, I really, I'm pretty stoked on my electric chainsaw. That thing rips and it's <laughs> it's battery powered. I'm out there, you know, instead of it being like, it's like, and the thing, I just love this thing. And so I think many of the choices we can make, like, I think we can make choices um, that are fun and good. 
you know, that, that may reduce our impact. You know, all these things are great, but we have to, at a, I think at a societal level, change how we operate. And to do that, we need to vote people in who will make changes and believe in this. We do need to make personal changes, but if we don't make the big structural changes, then it isn't going to amount to very much, unfortunately. And I don't think that's depressing. I don't mean to sound depressing at all, because I don't think it is depressing. I think it's exciting. Certainly exciting for major events, such as the Rugby League World Cup later this year. They intend to answer to their sustainability charter on all economic, social and environmental matters setting the standard, followed by the 2022 Commonwealth Games, for example. Sport can lead on this. It's what we've been saying. Priorities. What exactly are our priorities? Well, that is the end of this series. Emergency on Planet Sport has been brought to you in association with Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. And Richard Black from ECIU has been with us for the journey. Richard, um, hope you've enjoyed it. I really have enjoyed it, actually, Jonathan. I'm really impressed at how many uh, people you've got talking from all different types of sport, um, really knowledgeably and enthusiastically about this. Um, you've probably uncovered a sort of, you know, the size of this community in a way that no one else has quite uncovered before. So I thought um, we could just wrap this up, Richard, by looking at some of the the key words over the course of the, the series, because this is interesting, because I'm hearing the same words ringing around in my head, having made the, the eight episodes. And I think that it's quite interesting to sort of reveal them to you. Number three is, is ambition mm-hmm. and being ambitious on this. If you come back to the basic scientific point about trying to halve emissions over a 60-year period, really, 1990 to 2050, this is the way the scientists and the and, uh, talk about it, and this is the way that the international politics of this is set up. Well, the UK, for example, is halfway there. It's virtually halved emissions. So you actually can do this. And the reason it's happened, basically, is because you've had you know, a reasonably decent policy in a reasonably supportive electorate uh, happening consistently. And so, so that shows you that the ambition is not ridiculous. It is actually achievable. And that, in turn, I think, creates a mood for greater ambition for people to try even harder. Yes, which I guess leads us on to number two on our keywords chart, the most frequently used words of the series, which is leadership. I think leadership absolutely is what it's about. If you look at the last sort of 20 or 30 years in climate change, you've seen some scientists who've taken the lead. You've seen some politicians who've taken the lead. You've seen some business people who've, who've taken the lead. Now, all those are fine. But sports stars, sports clubs reach parts of society that no one else really reaches. They have that unique audience there. They have a unique voice. And so when we've heard, you know, people in the series like Melissa Wilson and, and David Pocock who who are saying things and actually doing things that demonstrate real leadership, that's huge for me. And what do you think uh, top of the charts might be, Richard? N- number one. Uh... Well, okay, so we've done ambition, we've done leadership. Uh, is it something around impacts or something like this? I think impact might, yeah, might have been a narrow, narrow fourth. Okay. I'll, t- I'll tell you what it is, and it's very relevant to the way we've lived our lives over the last, uh, well, getting on for 12 months now. Mm. It's adaptability. Right. Adapting and being adaptable. And so many people on the series have related the climate discussion to our response to COVID, because Mm. if we can react like that, 
if we can adapt like that, why can't we adapt to climate change? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting one, isn't it? I think arguably that's what makes, you know, Homo sapiens the most successful of all animal species because we are adaptable in all kinds of ways. I'm, I don't think most, most of us have enjoyed adapting to uh, to life under COVID. It's been very painful for... For many of us, um, but we've had to. It's been forced. It's well, been forced absolutely. upon us, which is which is the problem, isn't it, with climate change? Because yeah. it's it's in a way a more impactful concern for us, but it's longer term. So therefore, it's not being immediately forced upon us. This is true, and yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, on a sort of on a global basis, the idea of sort of forcing people to respond to climate change, I don't think, is a starter really. But luckily, I don't think. Um, moving to net zero emissions, uh, is that hard? I mean, just as a for example, 10 years ago, we would have all assumed that the car we might be buying in five or six years' times would, would, would be a petrol or diesel model. Now, in the UK and other parts of Europe and North America and so on, the choice is increasingly going to be electric because the innovation has happened, the technological development has happened, the economics has moved on. It's now just going to be a better thing to buy. There's no reason, I don't think, to, to, to believe that you know adapting to live in a net zero society is going to make society horrible. I have heard comparisons made by some in the sort of you know extreme regions of the climate contrarian movement that, oh, lockdown is what net zero will be like. No, it won't. Ridiculous thing to say. We'll still be able to live lives, the majority of our lives in the way in which we live them today and in some ways it'll actually be better Richard it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you Jonathan thanks for putting this together and it's been lovely to be with you well it's been a 9419 production for the energy and climate intelligence unit this has been a very interesting process over the past few months for me personally um, working out of a home studio in the south of England with remote recordings from Canberra to Canada to Cornwall Czech Republic and Cardiff and all places in between uh, while this sort of stuff has been going on I've got loads of oh I've got banging and drilling perfect there we go with with perfect timing <laughs> yep it it has meant quite a lot of editing over the past few months as you might imagine okay i don't think that's going to last for very long hello to the builders shout out to the builders as well as uh, everyone who's worked on the series special thanks to lee sperry and also danny garlic and the whole of the 94-19 team, uh, especially to all the contributors who volunteered their time so willingly. I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the positive reaction from everybody that, that I approached, who I invited to take part in this series. There is a real willingness to get this community mobilised and to spread awareness and to influence the entire planet here. Because I know from my point of view, I've come into this very much from the outside, not with not with much awareness of this subject at all, if I'm brutally honest about it. And I've learned so much. And there are so many little things that I'm going to be taking away into my life and my family's life as well. And yes, we need to in influence governments and corporate leaders on a grand scale to make a dramatic change on this. But we can all play our part as well. And I hope that that point has really been emphasised over the course of this series, because as a sporting community, we know how much we love what we go and see, what we go and play, what we go and watch. And we need it, don't we? We need it as part of our lives. We certainly want it. So 
we need to show it. We need to prove it. We need to look after this planet in order to look after our sport. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this. You can keep the conversation going at Planet Sport Pod on social media. And we're going to end with another one of our performance poetry pieces. This has been Emergency on Planet Sport, a 9419 production. Thank you and enjoy. Adapting. 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 The word heard again and again throughout 2020, a year inhumane. Millions dead. The whole world affected. Life changed dramatic. Pace unexpected. The COVID emergency, grim though it seems, is dwarfed by the threat of the climate extremes. An issue that's creeping, disease surreptitious. Perhaps we don't comprehend impacts so vicious. To up all our games, we need to prepare. Yet how to prepare, we're not fully aware. We need to connect, gain knowledge and power, make positive changes, even at this late hour. Just as the sports team needs skill and precision, they also need leaders with will and ambition. The tactics, the game plan, the strategy set. Major decisions without a regret. So the climate challenge, leadership needed, policies always informed, warnings heeded, a duty to change an ethical code, the planet priority, challenge bestowed, collective team effort, a challenge immense, more teamwork, more leadership, more common sense, sport as an influencer, Futures untapped. Connect. Adjust. Step up. Adapt.